Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ because He came into the world to save sinners. Lord, we thank You that He has saved us. Lord, we ask that You would help us to bend our hearts before Him this morning and give Him worship. We ask in His name. Amen. At the risk of being a Grinch this morning, I wanted to, um, in this text, before we begin looking at this text in depth, I wanted to point out some of the misunderstandings that usually go along with this text. Uh, for instance, there were not necessarily three magi. The Scriptures do not tell us how many uh, wise men actually came to visit the Lord Jesus. And we know for certain that their names were not Caspar, Melchior, or Balthazar. In fact, uh, we think of three wise men simply because three gifts are said to have been brought. And somewhere along the way, uh, names were assigned uh, to three wise men because there's three gifts. Furthermore, it's um, fairly certain that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, in fact, the light, the star that the wise men saw, uh, they lived 700 miles away. It would have taken them at least a month, at the very least, at the very uh, least, to to uh, arrive there at Bethlehem. Also, it's um, fairly uh, certain that the shepherds would not have been out in the fields uh, watching the sheep except during the springtime. So, there's a lot of evidence that Jesus was not born on the 25th. I think it's appropriate that we celebrate His, his birthday um, and, but the 25th is not Jesus' birthday in a strict sense. It is, however, Ethan Eggert's birthday. Happy birthday, Ethan. But it is appropriate that we would celebrate Jesus' birthday here in the church. It's not important how many magi there were that came to worship the Lord Jesus. We simply know that there were magi that came. When we worship His uh, coming into the world is also not as important. But the who is most important. The magi came to worship Jesus. He was born that we might be born again. He lived that we might live. He died that we might die to sin. He is risen that we might be reconciled to God. My intense desire this morning is that we may all fall down and worship King Jesus. I'm sure that none of you have gold or frankincense or myrrh to 
offer in worship to Jesus this morning. But that's okay. Because God says, bring your faith. Bring your love. Bring your repentance. Pay Him the reverence of your hearts. May those of us who have long worshipped, may we worship anew this morning with a yet greater reverence and a more intense love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And may for those of any of you who are far away from Him spiritually, as the Magi were far away from Him locally, may you come this morning and ask, where is He that is born King of the Jews so that we might worship Him? I want us to gaze upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do so through um, three different perspectives. I want us to examine the responses of the people to the Lord Jesus Christ here in our text. And so first of all, I want us to see that Jesus is the desire of the nations. Secondly, I want us to see that Jesus is the disturber of the self-reliant. And thirdly, that Jesus is the great joy of worshipers. So this first point, Jesus is the desire of the nations. Why did God draw these magi to worship the newborn Messiah? They had this very mysterious appearance. You know, how did they learn that the King of the Jews had been born, as it says in verse 2? How did they know that the star they were following pointed to the Messiah? Where exactly did they come from? We know they came probably from Babylon. But where in Babylon? What were the circumstances that caused them to come and seek the Messiah? You know, we have guesses um, that they probably were studying the Old Testament prophecies. They may have had Daniel's uh, prophecy. But I think there's a purpose ambiguity here. And it's not that these wise men in particular came and worshipped Jesus. But I think we should see in them coming from, from other nations and them not being ethnically Jews to see that uh, they are a reminder that, uh, that all the nations will come to worship the Lord Jesus. There's always been a strong expectation that the Jewish religion was in reality a worldwide religion. Genesis 17, verses 4-7, through 7, the Scripture reads, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come of you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3 gives this great picture of the nations streaming up the mountain of the Lord's temple 
to worship Him. So in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so the word goes out and the nations, plural, are streaming up to worship the Almighty God. And then Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is one of my favorite psalms. If you want a psalm to pray through, let me recommend Psalm 67. Because it's a prayer for the nations to come to the Lord. Listen to Psalm 67 in its entirety. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your ways may be known on earth, Your salvation among all nations. May all the peoples praise You, O God. May all the peoples praise You. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise You, O God. May all the peoples praise You. Then the land will yield this harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. And God will bless us in all the ends of the earth will fear Him. John Piper says that all of history is moving toward one great goal, the white-hot worship of God and His Son among all the peoples of the earth. How many of you have heard recently that Islam is the fastest-growing religion? You know, there's a lot of uh, studies that dispute that. In terms of new converts to Christ, the best, um, the best data that we have is there are three converts to Christ for every convert to Islam. Muslims tend to be in areas where there's a higher birth rate. Therefore, they are growing. Also, they are migrating to Europe in great numbers where the news media is uh, focusing on this migration to Europe. Also, the pace of Christianity has slowed in the West, but Christianity is on fire in South America, on fire in Africa, on fire in parts of Asia. Christianity is growing and will continue to grow. Because Jesus Christ is always the desire of the nations. I got to see just a, a bit of this when I went to Uganda 25 years ago. And the pace of Christianity has slowed in Uganda. Um, but when I was there, there was this... I, I'm sure I probably have told the story at one point or another. But uh, I got to go... We, we did a, a week of evangelism uh, in this uh, town called Luero. And they didn't have enough preachers because the preachers, the, the American preachers uh, that we had brought along with us, they were falling like flies. They, they were getting malaria. And so I was thrust out there to be one of these preachers. Um, and I had just uh, graduated from, co- from college a couple of, of months earlier. And um, Dr. Krabendam told me, you know the Scriptures. You had a preaching class with me. 
you're you're the next man up. And so uh, they put me in this church, and it was it was actually the first meeting of this church. We did the evangelism, we gathered all these people, and so they were planting the church this Sunday. And so I was going to be the first uh, um, preacher in this church. And it was, I don't know, about 70 or 80 people there that we had met during the week through our evangelism. And we had organized that during the service that others would stand up and give their testimony before I got to preach. And so, uh, sure enough, we, you know, we had people that would stand up and give their testimony. And then other people started raising their hands. And I'm going... What's going on here? You know, I don't know exactly, you know, the, what, what's happening. And, and so, um, so I said, yes, and, you know, may I help you? And they said, well, we'd like to give our testimony to you. And I thought, do I tell them no? And I, okay, you can give your testimony. And people started standing up and they were saying, I listened to this person's testimony just now and I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. I gave my life to Him. And it was like, all these people came to Christ right there, and I was, Lord, are you going to save me any fruit to pick? <laughs> and um, you know, I've, I've seen uh, true revival culture, and just because Christianity is not re- is not thriving here in our culture, does not mean that it is not thriving throughout the world. Uh, we, we must not be egocentric in our view of Christianity. Robert Johnstone, who uh, wrote for many years the Operation World, he says, the church is bigger than you think. The growth of the church today is on a scale that is unique in the history of the world. We don't see it, but it is growing. Jesus Christ is on the march. Jesus Christ is the desire of the nations. He is drawing people to Himself. Even though we don't see it in our culture like we would like to, we must have an optimistic view of the Gospel. Jesus is the desire of the nations. We dishonor God if we are pessimistic about the power of the Gospel. We dishonor God if we don't pray that God would continue to cause the Lord Jesus Christ to be lifted up all over the world because He is the desire of the nations. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It continues to be the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus is always and will continue to be the desire of the nations. And when Jesus came into the world, He was the disturber of the self-reliant. And so, as I made the point last night, uh, so I'll make again, the only person who was antagonistic to the Gospel here in these uh, first accounts of the, the birth of Jesus Christ um, is Herod. And Herod was widely admired in Jewish society. He built his power from nothing. In fact, he became known as the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't Jewish. He was Udmean. He was very shrewd politically. 
He was very culturally educated. He was a gifted administrator. He's a great builder. He rebuilt the temple. And with a man who began from nothing, rose to such great power, uh, great administrator, why would he be so disturbed by the birth of a baby? Well, what happened was Christ threatened his self-proclaimed rule. The man was very paranoid. He killed his, his own children if he felt like they were a threat to his rule. And he knew that the Jews could not have two kings ruling over the Jews. And when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, he was out to destroy the competition. You know, this is the reason why Jesus is a threat to people today, uh, just as he was to to um, Herod. This goes back ten years ago. Um, but National Public Radio had had a news report, and it says a group of military religious a group, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, is preparing a possible class action lawsuit against the Pentagon for what lawyer Michael Weinstein calls the creation of a theocracy of a particular fundamentalist perspective within our own military branches. The foundation says a core of evangelicals are gaining influence at the Pentagon. Oh, horrors! Uh, Christians in the Pentagon. And they were violating military policies. It cites a Wednesday morning prayer session in the Pentagon's executive dining room which which uh, features speakers from the Christian... Uh, from the Christian world. There were people that were so threatened by a Wednesday morning prayer meeting in the Pentagon that they got a lawyer and organized a class action lawsuit. And we've seen over these past ten years that there has been a concerted effort to marginalize Christianity um, not only in the military, but throughout uh, all branches of government. That's why it was so such a big deal when our president-elect said, we're going to start saying Merry Christmas again. Because there's been this, this, this attitude that Christianity needs to be marginalized. Well, why is there this concern that Christianity be marginalized. Well, Jesus represents a threat to the lives of non-Christians. Instinctively, they know that they cannot be king of their lives if Jesus is truly the king of the universe. And people become fearful of losing their self-determination. They feel that they must guard at all costs their own priorities their own values, their own morals. And what we have is we have a world of kings who are not about to bow to the true King, Jesus Christ. We do have here in verse 3 a small hint that Herod was not the only one 
who was antagonistic to the birth of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod was troubled and then he went out to do something against, about it. But all Jerusalem was troubled as well. And when it says all Jerusalem, I don't think he's talking about the poor among Jerusalem. This would have been the people who were surrounding Herod. This would have been the people who were in Herod's council or in his, uh, in his sphere of influence. They would have heard that the king of the Jews was born because these, these uh, magi, these wise men came to visit Herod. And so the leaders of Jerusalem were, as it says here in verse 3, they were troubled along with Herod. You know, many people do not take an active uh, stance against Jesus. Herod certainly took an active stance against Jesus. Uh, We could see in verses 16 through 18 that uh, he sent to inquire uh, about this one that was born king of the Jews, and, and he put to death all children, that all male children that were two years old or under. That's, that's a hatred. Uh, that's an animosity. But the rest of Jerusalem, well, they were troubled. Um... They were religious leaders, surely. I'm sure that they researched the same uh, text of Scripture that the Magi had researched. And they were troubled by it, but they didn't do anything with with the information. And Bethlehem was within walking distance, only a few miles south of Jerusalem. But the the leaders of Jerusalem basically ignored the birth of the Lord Jesus. They were indifferent. They were troubled, but basically indifferent in their actions. Why this indifference? I do believe that there are many people who prefer their lives and their priorities more than they prefer Jesus. They're not going to act outwardly antagonistic. Inwardly, they're going to be indifferent to Him. They're going to live indifferently. They're practically going to live as if He didn't exist. Even if they are singing the Christmas hymns, talking about Jesus existing and believing that He exists, yet practically living as if He didn't. And even among the more religious, they also... Uh, there's a tendency to be indifferent to Him. They prefer their religious activity to actually having a living relationship with Jesus. They prefer their ritual rather than Christ's righteousness. They prefer their legalism rather than Christ's love. They prefer their goodness rather than Christ's grace. It's typical of religious people that they don't really think that they need a Savior because they're better than all those other people that don't come to church. Religious people can be among the most prideful people 
in the entire world. We see that in the lives of the Pharisees as we read the Gospels. And so Jesus came into the world and part of His ministry was to be the disturber of the self-reliant. And so He continues to be the disturber of the self-reliant. But Jesus also came to be the great joy of the worshipers. You know, for for us, Jesus is not just a theological proposition to whom we give mental assent. For us, He is not a fire insurance policy which we purchase by, with our faith. He is not, for us, a philosophical commitment or a way of life. For us, He is our living Lord. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of the universe. He is our Creator who loves us so much. We have a living relationship with Him. It is a real living relationship. He left heaven for us. He left an eternity of infinite happiness for us. He left bliss for us. He left the Father to dwell with us. He left heaven specifically to die for us on the cross. Our Savior is so good to us. He is so gracious to sinners like us. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. I love what Spurgeon said. He's talking about... uh, about his own preaching and, and and I identify with this so much. He says you are always someone said you are always preaching Christ in his glory. You are you are a man of one idea. Spurgeon responded precisely so. My one idea is that he is altogether lovely and that there is nothing out of heaven nor in heaven that can be compared with him even in his lowest and weakest estate. Verse 10 in our text says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My final question to you this morning is, Is He your great joy? And if not, why not? Do you want Him to be your great joy if He is not? He is the King of the universe. He loves us so much that He left His glorious position at the Father's right hand to come down to earth to take weak flesh like we have in order that He might be clothed with our sins there on the cross to pay the penalty, the debt that we owed, that we might live with God forever. That we might know Him. Is He your great joy this Christmas morning? Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, I can't speak for everyone in this room. I know I speak for many. I certainly speak for myself. That You are my great joy. Lord, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us. That throughout this day and every day, our exceeding great joy as we remember how much You love us. Pray in Your name. Amen.